Amen. All right, well, we're there. Am I on? We're there in uh, 1 Samuel 17, 1 Samuel chapter 17, and uh, I think I'm just a little too loud if you could turn me down. Thank you. This, uh, like we talked about, we are starting a brand new series on the subject of uh, slaying Goliath, David and Goliath, and honestly, this is probably one of the most famous stories in the Bible. I'm sure, you know, we all grew up hearing about David and hearing about Goliath and hearing about this great story, and uh, I want you to understand the context that leads into this story. If you look there at 1 Samuel 17 and verse 1, the Bible says this, now the Philistines... And of course, these are the bad guys, right? These are the enemies of the Lord. These are the enemies of the nation of Israel. Now the Philistines gathered together their armies to battle and were gathered together at Shoko, which belongeth to Judah, and pitched between Shoko and Azekah in Ephaz-Damim. Look at verse 2. And Saul and the men of Israel, these would be the good guys. These would be the children of Israel, the people of God gathered together their armies to battle, and were gathered together at Shoko, which, I'm sorry, gathered together their armies, and pitched by the valley of Elah, and set the battle in array. Now, if you see the word array there, the word array means to basically arrange their troops, so they got their troops ready to go against the Philistines. Look at verse 3. And the Philistines stood on a mountain on the one side. So I want you to get this picture. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side, and there was a valley between them. So you've got the children of Israel on one side on the mountain. You've got the Philistines on the other side on a mountain. You've got a valley between them, and they're able to see each other. They're able to communicate with each other. And the idea is that they're supposed to meet down in the valley to be able to go and fight against the children of Israel. That's the context. That is the context that leads us into the story. And then, of course, you have verse number four, and there went out a champion. It's interesting that the word champion, is. this is the only time you see the word champion in our King James Bible, and it's about a wicked man named Goliath, you know, an enemy of the Lord. So I'd be real careful about trying to make heroes out of worldly people today. Everyone wants to talk about the champions of this and the, you know, sports figures trying to make them, uh, you know, heroes. In the Bible, the one guy that was a champion was not a good guy. You know, it's not something that we want to be careful about allowing your children to make a bunch of worldly, you know, drunkard, drug-addicted athletes their heroes, you know. One of the reasons we want to tell stories and get into stories like the one about David and Goliath is because we want our kids to have heroes like David, all right? Not heroes like Shaquille O'Neal, all right? want to have heroes like the, the heroes in the Bible, not these athletes that are just, you know, representing the world and the things of the world. But in verse 4 there it says, And there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath. Notice what the Bible says, Whose height was six cubits and a span. Whose height was six cubits and a span. Now, a cubit, and you know everybody seems to agree on this, so I don't, I don't, I don't disagree with it myself. I think it's, it's appropriate. But a cubit was an ancient measurement of length. And most people agree, and the Bible even teaches this, that a cubit was basically the, the length of a forearm, or it would be the length of, you know, from your elbow to the tip of your finger is what they considered a cubit. And, and that basically ended up being that the average cubit or the average length that was considered a cubit is what you and I would call, uh, would consider 18 inches. So here the Bible tells us that this man, Goliath, was a giant because it says his height was six cubits, 
and a span. So six cubits would be nine feet, and a span means that this man was nine feet tall, or over nine feet tall uh, was this Goliath, who was a, a giant. Now, you know, for us, that would be a very big guy. I mean, for, especially for me. But, you know, even, even for the tallest one of you, you know, you would still seem like a grasshopper in his sight, right? Because nine, a man that's nine, over nine feet tall is what the Bible teaches us here. Now, we're going to delve into the story, and we're going to get really, uh, you know, we're going to get into it this morning, and we're going to get into it in the next several weeks as we develop it. But I thought it'd be uh, just kind of a fun thing as we begin this story of Goliath to just look at this idea in the Bible about giants in the Bible. Does the Bible teach that giants existed? Because, you know, people will actually look at the story of David and Goliath and say that it's mythology or that it's not real or that the Word of God is filled with a bunch of stories that they're nonsense because nobody ever lived that was over nine and a half feet tall or nobody, giants, you know, did not walk on this earth. So I I thought just kind of by way of introduction, we would look at this idea of, you know, does the Bible teach that giants existed on the earth? Have giants existed throughout history. So keep your place there in 1 Samuel 17. We're going to come back to it. But go with me to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter number 2 in the Old Testament. If you start at Genesis, you've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And you know, I I would think especially children might be uh, interested in, in what the Bible teaches, because, you know, there's a lot of interesting things in the Word of God, you know, and and as we study the Bible, we can, uh, you know, learn a lot uh, of cool things from the Bible, and one of them is this idea of giants, because we learn about Goliath, right, over nine feet tall, and Goliath is by far the most famous giant in the Word of God, but I want you to understand that giants are mentioned throughout the Bible. Giants are mentioned throughout the entire uh, Word of God. And I'm just going to give you some examples of that. I'm not going to run all the references because it would take too long. But if you're there in Deuteronomy chapter 2, look down at verse number 9. And notice what the Bible says. Deuteronomy chapter 2 and verse 9. The Bible says this, And the Lord said unto me, Distress not the Moabites, neither contend with them in the battle. For I will not give thee of their land for a possession, because I have given Ar unto the children of Lot for a possession. The Emims dwelt therein in times past, Notice what it says, a people great and many and tall as the Anakims, which also were accounted giants. You see the word giants there? The Bible tells us that there was a people that was great, they were many, they were tall, and they were accounted giants. And here's what you need to understand. Our word giant comes from the word gigantic. They're talking about people that when they saw these people, they said they were gigantic. They were giants. They were very tall. They were very great as the Anakims, but the Moabites call them Emim. So I want you to notice that they went by different names there uh, as far as the giants are concerned. Skip down to verse number 19, same chapter, just for sake of time. Look at verse 19, Deuteronomy chapter 2 and verse 19. And when thou comest nigh over against the children of Ammon, distress them not, nor meddle with them, for I will not give thee of the land of the children of Ammon any possession, because I have given it unto the children of Lot for a possession. Look at verse 20. That also was accounted a land of giants. Giants dwelt therein in old time, and the Ammonites called them the Zamzumim. So I want you to notice they had different names, again, what the people of the land called them. But here we're told that there was a land of giants, and giants dwelt therein 
old time. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 3. Look at verse number 11. Deuteronomy chapter 3 and verse number 11. Deuteronomy chapter 3 and verse number 11 says this, For only Og, king of Bashan, remained of the remnant of the giants. So I want you to know of giants. Notice that at this point, by the time that Moses and the children of Israel are entering into the promised land, there's less and less giants. They're becoming extinct, you know, if you will. And here we're told that only Ah, king of Bashan, remained of the remnant of the giants. Behold, his bedstead was a bedstead of iron. Is it not in Reba of the children of Ammon? Notice what it says. Nine cubits was the length thereof. We're talking about the bed of this giant, okay? It says that nine cubits was the length thereof. So his bed was nine cubits long. Now again, a cubit is approximately about 18 inches. So when we're talking about nine cubits, we're talking about 13 and a half feet. That's how long this guy's bed was. It was 13 and a half feet. And notice four cubits, the breadth of it. The breadth is how wide. Four cubits would be about six feet. So we're talking about this guy has a bed that is 13 and a half feet long, six feet wide. That's a big guy. All right. Now, it's not necessarily saying that this giant was 13 and a half feet tall. It's saying that his bed was 13 and a half feet tall, uh, long and six feet wide. So obviously his bed was probably a little bigger than he is, you know, so that he could lay in it. But still, if you need a bed that big, you're probably a pretty big boy. You're a big guy. After the cubits of a man is what the Bible says there. Look at verse 12. And this land which we possessed at that time from Aurora, which is by the river Arnon, and half Mount Gilead, and the cities thereof, gave I unto the Reubenites and to the Gadites. Look at verse 13. And the rest of Gilead and all Bashan, being the kingdom of Og, gave I unto the half-tribe of Manasseh, all the region of Argob, with all Bashan, which was called, notice what it says, the land of Giants. I want you to just notice, and again, we, we can look at a lot of different references, but I want you to notice that throughout the Bible, we see this idea that there was a land of giants. There was a, a, a valley of giants. There's a place where giants lived, where people were accounted as giants. Go to Numbers chapter number 13. You're there in Deuteronomy? Just had one book back into the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 13, and look at verse number 32. Numbers chapter 13 and verse 32. Numbers chapter 13 and verse 32. Numbers 13.32 says this, And they brought up an evil report. This is when the children of Israel were supposed to go into the promised land, and they sent in the, the spies to spy out the land, and they came back with an evil report. Remember, 12 men went to spy in Canaan. Ten were bad, two were good. You know, the ten came back with an evil report. And a report in verse 13, in chapter 13 and verse 32, it says this, And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof, and all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. They said, we saw people there that are very tall. They're men of great stature. Verse 33. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants, and we were in our sight as grasshoppers, so we were in their sight. And of course, they're saying, you know, we felt, they're just saying, when we looked up at these gigantic men, we felt like grasshoppers in their sight. We felt like very small individuals in the sight of these people. So here's what I want you to understand. The Bible, and this is just a small sampling, we could look at other passages, but the Bible most definitely teaches that there were giants 
who walked on this earth, that there were men of great stature that you and I would look at and say that they're gigantic who walked on this earth. Now, I'd like you to go to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews, in the, at the, towards the end of the New Testament, if you start at the very end of the book of Revelation and you head back, you'll go past Revelation, past Jude, past 3rd, 2nd, and 1st John, 2nd and 1st Peter, James, and Hebrews. I want you to find the book of Hebrews. And while you find that, let me just read for you of some men that have lived in modern history. And I've got some pictures, uh, if you'd like to see them, uh, you know, after the service, I'm, I'm happy to show them to you. But, you know, people act like, like, oh, there's no way that these giants lived on the earth. And, and please understand this. When we're talking about giants in the Bible, we're not talking about men that are 30 feet tall or 50 feet tall or 100 feet tall, right? What we're talking about is men that are 9 feet tall, 10 feet tall, 12 feet tall, 13 feet tall. And here's the thing. You know, uh, you know it, it, we're not talking about 50 feet tall, but it, you probably don't want to go into battle with a guy that's 10 feet tall. You know, or close to 10 feet tall. But here's what's interesting, because people will mock at the Word of God and say, oh, there's no such thing as giants. But in recent history, because remember, Goliath was just over 9 feet tall. He was 9 feet and a span. You know, is what we're told. He's over 9 feet tall. In modern history, we have had people that are close to being 9 feet tall that have lived in modern recorded history. Let me give you several examples. A, A guy by the name of Robert Wadlow, uh, lived to be 8 feet 11 inches tall. Uh, I, I found an article about him. Here's what it said. It said, Robert Wadlow, the giant of Illinois, reached the height of 8 foot 11 inches. Wadlow is the tallest confirmed person to have ever lived in modern history. He was born in Alton, Illinois in 1918, and he suffered from hypertrophy, uh, uh, pituitary gland, uh, causing him to produce massive amounts of human growth Hormone. There's also another man by the name of John F. Carroll, who was eight foot seven and a half inches tall, and he was born in 1932 in Buffalo, New York, and he was referred to as a Buffalo Giant in medical journals, and he had acromegalic giganticism, which is a disease that made him um, that tall. There's a guy by the name John Rogan. He lived to be eight foot nine inches tall, and he was the second tallest human being in recorded history, and the tallest of African descent, and he was, uh, he was not measured officially until his death, and uh, although he was less than nine feet tall, he weighed only 175 pounds, and part of that was because of the disease that he had. Uh, he wasn't able to walk and, and wasn't able to get the nutrition that he needed, but the point that I'm trying to make is this, that even in our recorded history, and we've got modern pictures that have not been doctored there. These are legit people that actually live... Even in our modern history, we've had people that have lived to be 8 feet and 11 inches tall. I mean, when you're looking at a man that's 8 feet and 11 inches tall, you're basically looking at Goliath. You know, because Goliath was 9 feet, was, you know, over 9 feet tall. But what I'm saying is, it's not just absurd that people would grow this tall, would live this long. Again, we're not talking about people that are 50 feet tall. We're talking about 9 feet tall, 10 feet tall you know, that height. Now, if you find your place there in Hebrews, keep your finger there because we're going to go right to it. But go with me to the book of Genesis in the, New Test- in the Old Testament. Genesis chapter number 6, first book in the Old Testament. Genesis chapter number 6. And, and, you know, let me say this. They've also, all over the world, they've uncovered, you know, uh, villages and grave sites where they have found skeletons of people that are 9 feet tall, 10 feet tall, 11 feet tall, 12 feet tall, 
13 feet tall. It's, it's very well documented. It's been found all over the world. And look, you say, well, why, you know, why would we be surprised when the Bible tells us that there was people that walked this earth that were gigantic, you know, that, there, that had beds that were 13 and a half feet uh, uh, long and 6 feet wide, you know. Now, here's what's interesting. You might be asking yourself, why is it that we don't hear about this? Because it's very well documented, and it's documented by, you know, reliable sources. Why do we not hear about all these giant graveyards that are found all over the world? And you can learn about it if you do research. But I'll tell you, here's the main reason that science has chosen to ignore you know, this, this, uh, the truth of giants living on this earth, it's because science is not really science. It's science falsely so-called in our country today. And they have an agenda they're trying to push, and it's called evolution. And here's the problem with giants existing thousands of years ago, is that it throws a wrench into their fairy tale of evolution. You say, why? Here's why. Because evolution teaches that we started off as small you know, creatures, and we're getting bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger, and one day we're going to be like the X-Men and flying around, you know, and doing all sorts of, you know, we're going to become gods, you know, and we're going to be, become this and that. That's what evolution teaches. In fact, if you, if you uh, do research, you know, they'll tell us that, that human beings, and this is, of course, a lie, this is not science, but they'll tell us that human beings came, all came from, you know, a, 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 an ape relative, that was three, that averaged a height of three and a half feet. So there was this ape that's like three and a half feet, and this ape learned to walk, and because it could walk, it, you know, now it could use its hands to build tools, and because it could build tools, now it learned to cook food, and because it cooked food, it got more nutrition, and its brain got bigger, and it got bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger, and here we are. But here's the problem with that. When you find you know, hundreds of people that were 13 feet tall that roamed this earth, it kind of messes that whole thing up. And here's why. The Word of God will always... Look, you will never uncover anything in this earth that will contradict the Word of God, but you'll uncover all sorts of things that will contradict the world's philosophy, the world's false science, the world's teaching. So it's interesting that the Bible tells us giants roam the earth. They found skeletons of giants all over the world. We have, I mean, today, even today, there are men alive today that are over eight feet tall. And, and we've had people in modern history that are nine feet tall, just like Goliath, you know, uh, uh, a little bit over nine feet, uh, less than nine feet tall. Goliath was a little bit over nine feet tall. The point is this, the Bible is true. You can trust the Word of God. The Word of God is true. But there is one thing, if you just bear with me for one minute, we're going to get right back into our story of David and Goliath. But there's one thing that I do want to speak about in regards to giants. Because we have dispensational friends today that teach that giants were the result of fallen angels mating with human women. Okay, now that is a false doctrine, that is a false teaching. We reject dispensationalism at Verity Baptist Church. It's, it's just a bunch of lies. But they get it from Genesis chapter 6. And I, I, I don't have time to develop the whole thing. I, one of these days, I'll preach an entire sermon on it. But just, I just want to show you this from the Word of God, just to kind of show you up on it. Because I do want you to believe in giants, but I don't want you to believe in this fairy tale of dispensationalism. So dispensationalism teaches that the fallen angels that came down with Satan basically married women on earth, and their offspring are what became known as giants. And they get this from Genesis chapter 6. Let's look at what it says, verse 1. And it came to pass 
that man began to multiply on the face of the earth. This is early into the history of mankind and the world's being populated. And daughters were born unto them. This is all talking about human beings, verse 2. That Notice what it says. The sons of God, the sons of God saw the daughters of men. Now, here's where we have our first problem with our dispensational friends. Because dispensationalists will look at this term, sons of God, and they'll say, this is, these are angels. And they're not just angels, they're fallen angels. All right? Now, here's what's interesting about that. In the New Testament, we learn all sorts of things about the fallen angels, you know, that followed Satan. Jesus is constantly casting them out. Jesus is constantly, you know, having conversations with them. Here's what's funny. You know what they're called in the New Testament? They're called devils. They're called demons. So our dispensational friends want us to think that what Jesus referred to as devils in the Old Testament, they're the sons of God. I mean, does that make any sense? The sons of God... They'll say, those are the angels, the fallen angels, the devils. Saw the daughters of men. Those are human women, according to them. That they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. Now, here's another problem. Jesus specifically told us that angels are not given in marriage. That angels do not get married. That angels, you know, they are spirits. They, they, don't have, they do not have fleshly bodies uh, to be able to have these type of relationships anyway. But according to them, they took them wives all, uh, of all which they chose. Verse 3, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. Verse 4, There were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God, again, these are the supposedly the angels of the devils, came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. So here's what they'll say, because in verse 4 it says, there were giants in the earth in those days. As they see, it's talking about giants. And, and you'll say, well, where did the giants came from? They'll say, well, the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men. And they'll say, those mighty men, those were the giants, which were of old men of renown. Now there's a couple problems with that. Throughout the Bible, the term mighty men is used. And you know what it means in the, in the Bible? Here's what mighty men means. It just means a warrior or a soldier. Someone who fights for a living. Someone who their, their career is to fight battles. That's what it is everywhere else in Scripture. And he, but here we're told, no, 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 it's the giants. Now let me just give you a couple things to consider, okay? Because they want us to believe that the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6 were devils, were demons, were fallen angels, and they came in unto the daughters of men, and they produced these mighty men. Did you, uh, keep your finger right there in Genesis chapter 6. We're going to come right back to it. Go to Hebrews chapter number 1 and look at verse 4. I, I hope you think this is interesting. I, I think it's interesting. You know, I, I think anytime you study the Word of God, it's interesting. But um, Hebrews chapter 1, and look at verse number 4. Notice what the Bible says. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 4. You say, are the sons of God fallen angels according to the Bible? Can, can the sons of God be fallen Because here's the thing. We don't go to a theological book. We don't go to a commentary. We allow the Bible to define itself. We allow the Word of God. We compare spiritual things with spiritual. We allow the Bible to tell us, can the sons of God be angels? And even more than that, fallen angels. You know, what we would refer to as demons or devils. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4. Notice what the Bible says. 
being made so much better than the angels. Now, I want you to understand, the context is Jesus. And you can read verses 1 through 3 to get that context. We're not going to read it for sake of time. But we're speaking about Jesus here. And here's what the Bible is saying, that God the Father made Jesus so much better than the angels. Talking about, uh, you know, that Jesus is, is, is a higher authority than the angels. And He, talking about Jesus, hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. A more excellent name than who? Than the angels. That's the context, that Jesus is better than the angels, and he has a more excellent name than the angels. Verse 5, for unto which of the angels said he? Now the he there is referring to God the Father, because God the Father is the one who made Jesus better than the angels, who gave him a more excellent name than the angels. In verse 5 he says, for unto which of, he's, he's trying to explain to us how he made Jesus better than the angels, how he made Jesus uh, 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 more excellent, he gave him a more excellent name than the angels. He says, for unto which of the angels said he at any time, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Did you catch that? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, I never looked at an angel and said, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, and what he's saying is, you know, he, he's restating. He's saying, okay, how about this? To which of the angels said he, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And the context, if you study it, is that he's saying, I never told an angel that he's my son. I never told an angel that I'm his father and that he will be my son. But I did tell Jesus that he is my son. And that's why he has a more excellent name. And that's why he is better than the angels. So look, Hebrews chapter 1 is telling us that God never looked at any angel much less a fallen angel, and called him his son. But yet dispensationalists want us to believe that in Genesis chapter 6, the sons of God were fallen angels, demons. And look, if, when you study the word of God, it can't, it's not so, it can't be. Look, it makes good sci-fi movies, but it's not true. It's just, it's not the word of God. You say, okay, well then who are the sons of God? Well, go to 1 John chapter 3. If you're there in Hebrews, you're going to go past the book of James, past 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 1 John, 1 John chapter number 3, 1 John chapter 3, and look at verse 1. You say, who are the sons of God? Here's what you need to understand. At Verity Baptist Church, we allow the Word of God to tell us what terms mean what they are. And so here's the thing. When you study that term, sons of God, throughout the Bible, there's just one consistent theme, all right? We're either talking about the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, but there are other sons of God in the Bible. Who are they? 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Behold... What manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we, this is John speaking, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. You know who the Bible calls the sons of God all throughout Scripture? It's Christians. It's believers. It's people who have believed on Christ. John 1.12, you don't have to turn there. You go, in fact, you go back to Genesis chapter number 6. But John 1.12 says this, But as many as received Him, talking about Jesus, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe in His name. So who are the sons of God throughout the entire Bible? It's one group of people. It's those who believe on Jesus Christ. Those who believe on the Lord. Those who call upon Him for salvation. So you say, well, who are the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6? I think it's just believers. And you say, but what's the big deal then? I, I think the, the problem is that these believers were being unequally yoked with unbelievers. And they ended up producing these mighty men, men of renown, these great men, just normal men that went out, con you know, conquered the land, but they became very violent people. 
Because look, whenever you connect yourself to worldly people, they don't make you better, they make you worse. And the world ended up becoming so violent, that's what the Bible says, that God ended up flooding the earth and started over with Jonah. But I want to just show you one more thing, and we're going to get back to to David and Goliath. Genesis chapter 6, verse 4. Because in verse 4 it says, well, it says there were giants in the earth in those days. So it's got to be talking about giants. But look, even if you don't connect Hebrews 1, 1 John 3, you know, John chapter 1, even if you don't connect when Jesus said that angels are not given to marriage, you know, that in the resurrection we will be like the angels in the sense that we're not given to marriage, even if you forget all that, just a reading of the text will tell you that what they're teaching is not true. Because look at verse 4. There were giants in the earth in those days. And also, notice these two words, after that. After that. After what? After the fact that there were giants in the earth in those days, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, because they tell us the sons of God coming into the daughters of men is the fallen angels going into women, and they bear children. Then uh, the, the same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. They'll say those are the giants. Here's the problem with that. The Bible tells us that there was giants in the earth in those days, and the sons of God going into the uh, daughters of men didn't happen till after that. So how in the world did these sons of God who are actually devils, you know, produce giants when the Bible tells us that there were giants in the earth in those days already? They were already there. So just even just a simple reading of the text, even just looking at when he says, and also after that, he tells us this thing happened between the sons of God and the daughters of men. And you, and you might ask the question, well, why does he even mention giants? Why does he even mention that? And here's my opinion on that. My opinion on that is that God is telling us that before the flood, the giants were way more, you know, in number than after the flood. After the flood, you have Moses going into the Canaan land, and they talk about there's a land of the giants. There's a valley of the giants. There's a kingdom of the giants. And by the time you get to David and Goliath, there, you know, there's like five giants left that they have identified. I think the Bible's telling us that before the flood, giants were, were more just numerable. There was many more giants in the earth in that day. After the flood, a bunch of them did die, but they weren't there as a result of the sons of God coming into the of man because it says that the giants were there and the whole thing between the sons of God whatever you think that is happened after that okay it says it happened after that so you can't tell me that the giants were the result of that if that happened after the fact anyway I just you know you said why would you look into that here's why I would look into that because we need to allow the Bible to be our final authority we, and this is why you need to be careful with listening to preachers, you know, that, you know, that are just following commentaries. And it's interesting. It makes good writing. I get that. But it's just not real. It's not the Word of God. It's not true. Let's go back to our story. So that's our little, you know, I hope you found that interesting, just kind of laying a context about giants. You know, giants in the Bible and giants in the Word of God. And again, we, you know, the most famous giant is Goliath, who was over nine feet tall. Now, let's go back to our, our story there, 1 Samuel 17. And um, let's look at just as we begin, because we're going to dig into this story for the next several weeks. We're going to really dissect it and learn about uh, the truths that we can learn from the story of David and Goliath. But for this morning, what I'd like to do is I'd like to look at the two sides of this giant story. The two sides of this giant story. The first side is, of course, what I'm referring to as the formidable adversary. 
The formidable adversary. What does the word formidable mean? It means inspiring fear or respect through being impressive, large, powerful, intense, or capable. That's who Goliath was. He was a formidable adversary. He was someone who inspired fear and respect. Why? Because he was impressive, because he was large, because he was powerful, because he was intense, and because he was very capable when it came to the art of war. Look at verse 4. As we go through the story, the first thing that's introduced to us is the champion, right? And there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits, that's nine feet, and a span. So he's over nine feet tall. And he had a helmet of brass. Notice how the description of this warrior is given to us in detail. And there's a reason for this. You know, we, we believe that it's uh, Samuel who probably uh, wrote this down, obviously under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. And there's a reason why Samuel has given us the details and telling us about this man, Goliath. It says, he had an helmet of brass upon his head. He was armed with a coat of mail. A coat of mail there is not having to do with the post office, all right? It's, it's metal rings or plates that are joined together uh, to, to be armor upon his body. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of brass. The point is, that his armor was very heavy because he was a very big man, very strong man. Verse 6, and he had greaves of brass upon his legs. Those are pieces of armor used to protect his shins. And a target of brass between his shoulders. So he has a breastplate. Just get the picture. you got a nine-foot man. He's got a helmet on his head. He's got, you know, metal, uh, 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 a coat of mail links of mail, you know, throughout his body as a shirt that he would put on to protect his body. He's got, you know, a metal on his shins. He's got a breastplate on, on, his, uh, on his breast, on, on his chest. Look at verse 7. And the staff of his spear was like the weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. Here's what you need to understand. He had this spear that was a very heavy spear. This spear was not meant to be thrown. It was not like a javelin that was meant to be thrown. This was like a very heavy spear. This spear was meant to use as a tool of attack, as a tool of offense. So this spear is not something that he would be throwing. It would be something that he would be using to stab with. All right? Uh, get the picture. Notice verse 7. And the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. This is a heavy uh, spear. And one, notice, bearing a shield, went before him. His shield was so heavy, another man carried it for him. And when he went out into battle, he went out into battle as a group. And you got to understand this. When you understand, you know, uh, uh, the, the way that military battles were fought back in the Bible times and, and in ancient history, today we fight battles from far away. You know, we send missiles, we have snipers, you know, we even, even you know, when it's, when it's uh, people fighting, we, we're using rifles and we're using guns. During the time of the Bible, the fight was in your face. The fight was hand-to-hand combat where you could look into the eye of your opponent, you could smell the breath off of his mouth, you got up close and personal. And oftentimes, what these people would do is that they would create a wall of shields. And as they went into battle, the soldiers would stand behind this wall of shields. And here's what you need to understand. If that wall was breached, if that wall was breached, if the man next to you was hurt, injured, killed, or if he ran off scared, you would most likely die. 
Because the only safety in these battles was to stay behind these shields and try to kill your opponent while they're behind their shield. Here's where Goliath comes in, where he's got this two-man tag team. One man's only job, one man's only job is to hold up a shield to protect Goliath. And this strong man with this huge weapon over nine feet tall would literally be able to stand over the man that's protecting him with a shield and over that man just stab the opponents over that wall of shields. And this man was literally a killing machine. He was a man who had been in battle since his youth. He was a man who knew battle, understood battle, when you went into battle during ancient times, you, we were told in history that many men would go into battles completely, you know, drugged up. They would take drugs, what we would call modern-day drugs. They were taking those in ancient times, and they would take those drugs just to be able to build up enough courage to go into a battle like that. They would go into those uh, battles, you know, completely drunk, just to be able to get the courage to be able to go into a battle like that. And when you went into a battle, like the battles in the Old Testament, you would often look into the eyes of your opponent, and you would see, you know, a glaze because they were drugged up, because they were drugged. You would often look into the eyes of your opponent, and you would see fear. But the worst thing, the worst thing that you could see when you looked into the eyes of your opponents was to see calm. Because when you saw a man who was calm during the battle, you knew that you were dealing with an experienced warrior who had been doing this for a long time. And they knew what they were doing and they were not afraid. And this was Goliath. This formidable adversary who would strike fear and demand respect simply by his large, powerful, and intense physique. So we start with our formidable adversary. There's a second, there's a second player in this story, and it's the frightened army. Look, look at verse 11. We saw the formidable adversary, but now notice the frightened army. 1 Samuel 17 and verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard those words, and I'm sorry, you know what, I skipped a few verses. Let me go back. Look at verse 8 real quickly. Not only do I want you to see the, the, the champion, but I also want you to understand the challenge. Notice the challenge that came from Goliath. Verse 8, And he, Goliath, stood and cried unto the armies of Israel and said unto them, Why are ye come out to set your battle in array? So Goliath comes out and says, Why have you come now to set your battle in array? Why are you arranging your troops to go into battle with us? Am not I a Philistine and ye the servants of Saul? Now notice, he doesn't say that they are the servants of the Lord. He doesn't say that they are the servants of God. He says that they are the servants of Saul. Notice what he says. Here's the challenge. Choose you a man for you and let him come down to me. So here's what Goliath puts this challenge. He says, look, there's no reason why we should all descend into this valley and, and have many casualties and have many people die. He says, why don't we do this? And this was something that was commonly done in ancient times. He said, let's just have a representative battle. And we actually see this in scripture at other times. We see it in the word of God itself. They said, just count out certain men. And in this example, he says, you choose one guy and he will fight against me. Notice what he says, verse 9. If he be able, that's really the question. If he be able to fight with me and to kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then shall ye be our servants and serve us. So we have our champion 
and we have our challenge. He says, let's not all go fight. There's no point of, all, of so many people dying. Just choose one man. Meet me down in the valley. If he kills me, we'll surrender to you. And if I kill him, I mean, the man that would take on this challenge was not only taking his own life into his hands, but he was taking the life of his entire nation. Because this outcome of this battle would determine, the outcome of this battle would determine the fate of the rest of the nation of Israel. And that leads us into our frightened army. Look at verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard those words of the Philistines, I want you to notice these words. They were dismayed and greatly afraid. They were dismayed and greatly afraid. The word dismay means the feeling of worry or anxiety concerning a, an outcome of a hopeless situation. The word dismay means that they looked at a situation that they said was hopeless. There is no hope. There is no man. There is no body who can go down and kill Goliath. Goliath puts this challenge and he says, just give me a man to fight. And the Israelites and Saul said, the Bible tells us they were dismayed. Why? Because they said there is no hope. There's no hope. No one, no one can beat Goliath. But not only were they dismayed, the Bible tells us they were greatly afraid. What does the word afraid mean? It means an unpleasant emotion caused by the threat of danger, pain, or harm. And here's what you need to understand. The word dismayed is connected to a situation that is hopeless, to a situation that has no hope, that there is no hope that you will come out on top, that there is no hope that you will actually win the battle, that there is no hope that you will actually win. And the word afraid is connected to the fact that it will be hurtful. Not just that there is no hope, but when it's done, it will hurt. There will be pain, and there will be suffering, and there will be women and children and other men and elderly people who will pay the price. This is why the children of Israel were dismayed. And this is why they were afraid. Because of Goliath. Because when they looked at Goliath, they looked at a situation that in their minds and in their heart was hopeless and would be hurtful. I want you to notice just one more thing. Look at verse 11 there. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, I want you to notice that Saul is mentioned there. Saul is the king. Look down at verse number 19. Now Saul... And they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. That phrase fighting there is used loosely. They're not really doing a lot of fighting, if you know what I mean. But I I want you to just understand a couple of things, just as we develop this story. Saul is mentioned several times, and here's what you need to understand. If there was anybody who should have gone down to fight Goliath, it should have been Saul. And it should have been Saul for a couple of reasons. Number one, he's the king. He's the leader. He's the one that everyone's looking at for leadership, and everyone's looking for him to take the initiative. But more than that... The Bible tells us that Saul was actually the tallest man there. Go, down to, go back to 1 Samuel chapter 9. Look at verse 2. 1 Samuel chapter 9. We're, we're going to be done here soon. Just stick with me. 1 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 2. 1 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 2 says this about Saul. And he had a son whose name was Saul. This is when Saul was being chosen to be king. A choice young man and a goodly And there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he. From his shoulders and upward, he was higher than any of the people. 
All right? So the Bible tells us that Saul, from his shoulders and upward, he was higher than any of the people of the children of Israel. Saul was the tallest man in the side of the children of Israel. Now, here's what we can gather from that. Okay? Here's what we can gather from that. God loves short people. I'm, I'm just kidding. You know, but it, you know, it, just, it, it seems to me like every tall person in the Bible is not a good guy, you know? Uh, anyway, maybe that wasn't the application. The point is this. Saul was a tall man. Saul was the leader. Saul was the king. Saul probably should have been, Saul should have been the man who took Goliathon. But Saul was paralyzed, along with the rest of the children of Israel. Why? Because they were dismayed. They saw no hope for this situation, and they were afraid. They felt that the outcome would be hurtful. Go back to 1 Samuel 17, look at verse 20. The Bible says this, and David. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time on David this morning, we're going to deal with David more next week. But just so you understand, this is our unlikely hero. This is our underdog. David rose up early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took and went as Jesse had commanded him. Jesse's his father. Jesse had commanded David to go to the, where the army was and to run an errand. And he, David, came to the trench of the host. The host is a large number of people and was going forth to fight and shouted for the battle. Now, here's what I want you to understand. Jesse tells David, his son, go to where the army is and check in on your three elder brothers who are fighting with Saul. All right? We're going to get into that next week. But I want you to notice, when David shows up to the battle, I want you to notice what it says there at the end of verse 20. And he came to the trench as the host. Okay, The host is the large number of people. Talk about the children of Israel, because he's on the side of the children of Israel. As the host was going forth to fight and shouted for the battle. Here's what I want you to understand. It's not that the children of Israel, because the Bible tells us that Goliath came out for 40 days and gave this challenge over and over, and he would defy the children of Israel. The word defy means he would openly shame them. He would embarrass them. Every day he would go out and say, give me a man. Find a man who's willing to fight with me. Find a man who's willing to take the battle on. Find a man who's willing to fight, and we will serve you or you will serve us. And when David shows up, the Bible tells us that he came into the trench, and the host was going forth to fight and shouted for the battle. Here's what I want you to understand. The children of Israel, every day, every day they woke up, and they were actually trying to psych each other on to go fight. They were trying to encourage each other. And they were telling each other, let's not go fight Goliath one-on-one. We'll never be able to do that. But let's just all go fight. Let's just all go fight together. And we will just fight them head on. And, you know, maybe one of us can't kill Goliath. But maybe in the battle, many of us can take him on. And that's what it was going on when David showed up. David showed up. Look at verse 20. Came to the trench as the host was going forth to fight and shouted for the battle. They're growling each other up to say, yeah, let's go do it. Let's go fight. And they're getting themselves ready and psyched up to go fight the enemies of the Lord. Verse 21, for Israel and the Philistines had put the battle in array, army against army. They were actually getting ready to fight, and they did this over and over and over again. And you say, well, what happened? Why would they not actually fight? Verse 22, and David left his carriage in the hand of the keepers of the carriage, and ran into the army, and came and saluted his brethren. And as he talked with them, remember, they're getting ready to go. They're just psyching each other up and saying, let's just go fight. Let's just go do it. Let's just do it together. And they were shouting for the battle. The Bible says in verse 23, as he talked with them, behold, there came up the champion of the Philistines of Gath, Goliath by name, out of the armies of the Philistines, and spake according to the same words. And David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man 
fled from him and were sore afraid. I want you to understand this. Every day, they'd get up and say, today's the day. Today we're going to do it. Let's, 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 let's go take on Goliath. Not one of us, but all of us. And they would get the battle in array. And they would get the plan going. And they would psych each other up. And they would go forth to fight and shouted for the battle. And every day they would go on to uh, approach the enemy and say, today we're going to fight them. Today we're going to win them. And every day Goliath would come out and roar and say, fee fi fo fum <laughs> and, and come out and show himself. And every day they would, again, be gripped by fear. And the Bible says... They fled. I want you to understand this was a very embarrassing, a very shameful time for the children of Israel. And here's why. Not only were they fearful, but they were failing. Every time they said, today we're going to do it, today we're going to go, today we're going to fight, they would run out and Goliath would come out and say, no! And they would, they would see Goliath and they would run. They were fearful, they were failing, and they were fleeing. They were fearful. And they were failing. And they were fleeing. Your pastor, you meant us, what does this have to do with us? Here's what it has to do with us. And here's what you need to understand. The story of David and Goliath is a real story. A real man who was actually over nine feet tall, actually lived. His name was Goliath, and he fought against the children of Israel. But the reason that it's put in Scripture for us is because it represents the battles of our lives. See, the story of Goliath is probably one of the most famous stories in the Word of God. But you find the same story throughout the Bible. Whether it's Moses going against Pharaoh, the leader of the world, whether it's Joshua going against the walls of Jericho, whether it's Gideon and his 300 soldiers going against an innumerable number of military on the other side, whatever major story in the Bible you want to pick, you often find that it is a giant on one side and it is a cowardly people on the other side who are paralyzed by fear, who are fearful, who are dismayed and afraid. So here's the question I have for you. Who's your Goliath? What's your Goliath? You say, well, how can I identify the Goliath in my life? Well, it's easy. What makes you dismayed and afraid? What makes you dismayed and afraid? What do you look at and you say, there's no hope? It is a hopeless situation. There is no one, there is no one that could fight that battle and win. See, for us, it's not a physical nine-foot man. But for you, it may be a relationship. For some of you, it's a marriage. You look at it, and you say, there's no hope for this. There's no going back. There's no winning it. It's gone too far. There's no hope to recover. For some of you, it may be a child. You have a child who's gone wayward, who's gone away from the Lord, and you say, there's just no hope. They're never going to get saved. They're never going to get right. They're never going to come back. Too many years have been wasted. Too many things have been said. For some of you, it may be a relationship with a parent. My father just hurt me too much, or my mother just did too many things, and there's never going to be a recovery to that. There's no hope for that battle. For some of you, it might be an addiction, whether it's drugs or alcohol or pornography or gambling. You said, I've tried to fight it. I psych myself up and say, we're going to win this. We're going to win this battle. And then you go, and Goliath shows up, and you flee. And you run. And you're scared. Maybe it's a health issue. See, see for some of you, it's, it's, it's a confrontation. You know you have to have that conversation. You know you have to confront that individual. But the truth of the matter is, you don't want to know the truth. 
You'd rather not know the truth. For some of you, maybe it's not a confrontation. Maybe it's not a difficult conversation that you know you have to have, but it's a confession that you know you should make. And you know that you should come out. You know that you should come clean. You know that you should say, here's what I did, and I'm sorry, and I, and I apologize. But you look at it and you say, it's going to hurt too much. Maybe it's a decision. You know what God wants you to do. You know what the right thing is to do, but it's going to hurt me too much. It's going to affect me too much. I look at the situation and I see it and it is just hopeless and it is hurtful. And we look at these giants in our lives and it paralyzes us. And we, like the children of Israel, are dismayed and afraid. Why would we spend the next couple of weeks studying the story of Goliath? Here's why. If you look down at verse number 49... 1 Samuel 17 and verse 49, the Bible says this. And David put his hand in his bag and took thence a stone and slang it and smote the Philistine in his forehead that the stone sunk into his forehead and he, Goliath, fell upon his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling, with a stone and smote the Philistine and slew him but there was no sword in the hand of David. If there is one thing that we can learn from the story of David and Goliath is this, that Goliath can fall and you can win. Whatever that is, whatever that Goliath is in your life, whatever that situation is that you look at and you say, it's hopeless, it's hurtful, I can't win it, I've tried, I'm fearful and I keep failing and it's just easier to flee, it's just easier to give up. It's just easier to run away. Whatever that Goliath is in your life, the story of David and Goliath teaches us that we can get the victory. Now, it's not by our strength, and it's not by our might. But that's why. That's why it's important to understand this very epic story in Scripture. And next week, next week, we're going to pick up the story right where we left it off. And next week, we're going to talk about not slaying Goliath, but what we need to do before we slay Goliath. And what needs to happen before you get to Goliath. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this story. We thank you for this account in history that literally, physically happened. There really was a man named Goliath. There really was a boy named David. There really was a king named Saul. There really was a military of the children of Israel who were dismayed and afraid. And Father, I pray that you would help us today. I pray that you would help us to learn to identify the Goliaths in our lives.